by way of commercial, we're almost done with the first chapter in the Gospel of John. And I can assure you, given recent events, not so much something that's been pretty much particularly global. I mean, you have things that has transpired across the sea with the country we had gone to war with independence for. <laughs> and then we have other aspects of, of political quandaries. It's amazing how the word of God becomes relevant even to this day. Now, I didn't go and pick any fights on Facebook because I'm not active there. I don't have a Twitter and I don't do Instagram. But nonetheless, to see everything that has transpired in the news cycle, you feel and can see that what was spoken of in their day, something that can still apply now. With that being said, we will continue in our series with the Gospel of John. And we have arrived now to the point of which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will now start his earthly ministry. Of which, with your Bibles, please turn to first, sorry, John 1. Verses 29 through 34, of which it reads, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. 30, verse 31, and I did not recognize him, but so that he will be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified, this is the Son of God. Shall we now to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. And we are thankful that we are here, able-bodied and good help. We pray that as your word is being spoken, let be with your servant as he feed and cheat your sheep. And let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. As if when the word truth is being spoken, it has come from your very mouth. We are now taking upon the stuff that is in regards to the disclaimer of which our Lord and Savior began his earthly ministry. And it is a show to us, as again, you have the men in the pulpits to care for their souls, our Father, you care for us as you sent your Son to die on our behalf. So Christ, holy holy precious name we pray. Amen. And being a good Presbyterian, we always need our time clock ready enabled. <laughs> now, as we come here, albeit Jesus starts his earthly ministry by beginning with his baptism, 
we note the many accounts that are seen throughout the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do they take a different approach than what John takes? No, they actually all have harmony. So, by the first clause in verse number 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him. He, being John the Baptist, within context, we look at the previous verse to see what transpired. Because note a dispensation in time. We have a two-day period. Now, if you note to the other accounts, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, you do not see this dynamic at work. So there's a nuance into why John will make this point of which by verses 19 through 27 and the prior piece of John 1 we note what transpired in Bethany beyond the Jordan as John was baptizing people by verse 19 the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to question him but I want to take your attention and if you have your pens and you're making note note in Luke 3 verse 2 a nuance of which comes to the John the Baptist the word of God came to him take note of this and this is a very important piece this is not to say that John the Apostle because we're in the Gospel of John took slack not to note this and I will bring this all into harmony as we further down the sermon but I want to give you the nuance onto the difference that makes John the Baptist a prophet the word backs this acclaim so then now being guarded with the word of God, as it comes to John the Baptist, he is now equipped to answer the messengers as we saw in the prior verses 19 to 27 in John 1 properly. So then let's continue with the clauses within verse number 29. Where was our Lord coming from? Full note, Unlike Matthew and Luke, who takes to the genealogy and childhood of Christ prior in the beginning of their chapters to understanding a piece of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have here that upon which we have the first revelation that Jesus is named by name. He is making a voyage. Ah. The dispensation of time, two days. In the prior, John the Baptist is speaking with the messengers. It is proper and to think unto the next day on which he arrives and John the Baptist see Jesus coming. As is noted here, he is making his voyage from his hometown. To give this exclaim, I bring to you Matthew 3.13. It states in detail, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan. And then in Mark 1 verse 9, it is noted that the city, which is Nazareth in Galilee, is which he came from. You note here, John, in showing that dispensation of time, has not lost harmony with the other accounts. But albeit... He thought proper to show in dispensation of time. It took our Lord, and it's proper to think, 
two days to get to the Jordan. Now, how far is Galilee from the Jordan? It's actually 73 kilometers for those who's watching overseas. And for those on the empirical system, which is here in the States, it is 45 miles. Now, they didn't have, or from my understanding, we don't have of him riding on a horse until he rode in the mule onto, onto Jerusalem. So I have to have a good feeling he walked 45 miles. I can see it can take him two days to get there. Now, you might be thinking, wow, Pastor, you took a while to get to such a detail in the clause. I show you that is not slack in the apostle to give this detail. And this is going to be important as even the other pastors continue through the gospel message that's written in his book. The harmony is throughout the other accounts. There is nuances as to which they take to share and give to the church. You see the personality. This is a gospel from the one whom Christ has loved. But yet there is no discontinuity from the other accounts. It is our job, especially as ministers, to make this palatable, especially to those who's taking this, to garter and strengthen your faith. Therefore, the significance even to the point of him coming from Nazareth is relevant. And let's go down memory lane. Upon our young Lord's life, he remembered John does not disclaim on this, like I stated with Matthew and Luke. We do not get to the details of the childhood. But by verse 11 in chapter 1, I noted to you, and if you will recall, I bring your attention, he came onto his own, and his own people did not accept him. So therefore, not to bring harmony, and to provide you some more detail, in Matthew 2, Verses 16 through 18, we see the extent of Herod's depravity so much that Joseph was to move the child and the family to Egypt until Herod's death and for the prophecy from the old to be fulfilled in the new with Isaiah 11 verse 1 and Matthew 2.15. And I think Luke for the details that he gives, upon which now them coming out of Egypt is shows by chapter 2 in Luke, verses 39 and 40. And when his parents had completed everything in accordance with the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, their hometown. Recall when the Lord, now mind you, we did not have this kind of, of exclamation with the gospel of John. But if you're familiar with the other gospels in which he was born, he was born in Bethlehem. And yet he's being called Jesus of Nazareth. Is it the notion of where his family, his hope Tom was? And if it was sawfoot that Joseph would have stayed in Bethlehem, it's a place of there he has no commonality. He is not known there. To the point that he had to take temporary lodging and a major. So then, it is only proper, as it continues here in Luke 2, 39 through 40, 
that they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. For four, and by verse 40, it was there the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and favor of God was upon him. Now be it that we're coming to this point of his start of his earthly ministry. Why did not the Messiah start when he was a child? It's a valid question now, isn't it? It shows by the scriptures that favor was upon him. Yet why did he not start his ministry? I mean, everything done proper in accordance to the law of Moses was done on him. I'll note to you this, Luke 2, 21, in eight days after they were completed, he went through his circumcision. By verses 22 to 24, when the days for the purifications according to the law of Moses was complete, they brought him, which is Christ, excuse me, which is Christ, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And by verse 23, as it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. By verse 24, and offer a sacrifice according to what has been stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young doves. So everything in the precipice of which our Lord and Savior comes into this world, all is set afoot, all is made proper, all is done in accordance. Why did he not yet take on the ministry? It's because at that point in time, as John is showing in the first chapter of his gospel, it's going to show the emphasis in regards to the deity of which the God-man walked on this earth. This is why it's important to understand that hypostatic union. Because you have God who is fully divine. In the form of man. The man side was not neglected. As the man increased in knowledge. Did it also mean that the divine nature increased in knowledge? No. No. This is why it's important to emphasize. To have the union between the Godhead and the manhood all right. It's very important. In fact, when I bring you to the intro, the first thing I pointed across was that this letter was written to correct heresy that was spreading. And the number one heresy that was out there amongst John's churches was the lack of a claim given to the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is intent with this letter. Hence why in the prologue from verses 1 through 18, he wants you to know it is clear. He is the Son of God. And being the Son of God, he received particular blessings John doesn't note this, but Luke makes an appointment in which Simon, a devout and righteous man in Luke 2, 25 through 33, and the prophetess Anna in Luke 2, 36 to 38, 
are blessing the child. But wait a minute here. Why does the Christ in and of himself need blessings? And of which these two are one, not officers in the church? How is it that this Holy Spirit can convey this thinking? Calvin notes here, and he speaks of it very well, mind you. Luke mentions not more than two persons who receive Christ, but this is intended to teach us that whatever belongs to God, however small it may be, it ought to be preferred to us, to the whole world, that those who in any doubt in mind would have thought about the great splendor that surrounded him. It is the Spirit of God whose presence, which was not enjoyed by all, but it was shown to be joined by these two individuals. So much in dwelling in Simon and Anna, these two persons are entitled to a greater reverence than an immense multitude of those who have pride and swell in nothing but their empty titles. Then, what right had Simon to take upon himself an office of blessing the Christ? And why does Anna have a designation? It is because the holy melody which proceed from the lips of Simon and Anna is praised by Luke in order that believers may exhort each other to sing with one mock priest the praises of God and that many will give multiple replies. For it is without no contradiction. There is no contradiction here. As Paul stated in Hebrews 7 verse 7, the less is blessed by the greater. And the apostle then, not speaking of every blessing, but it is probable that Simon blessed them as a private man and as one of the people, and he prayed for, as we learned recently, the prosperity and advancement of Christ's kingdom. But to Anna, who is a prophetess, to show by her age, it was to be given the remarkable testimony of her piety and her holiness and her chastity of life. I want to note this to you because a lot of times, and as I stated early in the little commercial that I had, a lot of times people want to take to themselves to get comfortable in their Christianity. They're comfortable. They don't think they have to war against sin. Everything that transpires in their life seems to be just this easy, smooth, and prosperous road. And that's not true. That is definitely not true. And the reason why is because these two individuals, though born in sin, and though the scriptures make a right, not showing the details of their lives, but you can note those who have passed through in history to explain these two individuals, conveyed that they lived a devout and holy lifestyle. And I bring this up because John the Baptist is one in particular that he had to go and exclaim. And I mean that if you get well accustomed to the other gospels, 
to exclaim, he is not the Christ. He preaches and goes and explains and they wonder. Man, you speak with such gravity, such power. Surely you must be the man. And he said, not even I am fit to untie his sandals. <laughs> Upon which, continuing here, I do want to show by verse 40 in Luke 2, in that particular format about the show in regards to the child continuing to grow in the wisdom and the favor. Because as I exclaimed before, the God-man cannot be lost. The understanding that our Lord taking on that bodily form, he grew as a human being. Well, that being said, <laughs> we come now and segue to the latter portion for John states as Jesus now is president in front of him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's answer is a proclamation to those who questioned him from the previous day because I have no doubt they continue to stay with him even on to the next. So then, the stage is set. With the 45-mile voyage that our Lord takes and that the many were in attendance. And among those in attendance, there was tax collectors. There were soldiers. We see this. And if you want to take note, it was in Luke 3, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, and verse 18. Including the Jews who sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem and the messengers that had been sent from the Pharisees to ask of John the Baptist of his authority and his identity. He makes the announcement and the proclamation to all that was there. It's this man. And note the title he conveys. Behold the Lamb of God. John here is alluding to the Paschal Lamb. For the Jews at that time knew very well they had their confidence fixed on all the outward signs that was practiced by the council. Therefore, not thinking nor understanding that when John makes this proclamation, it's also a show to them. Note, there, they abuse the institution which is considered a sacrifice because John testifies. He doesn't say so much that this is Jesus. He gives the principal office of Christ, the Lamb of God. And note by the latter clause he takes then, it is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He conveys this by showing the sacrifice that Christ was to take upon his death and that he and this man alone is the Messiah. This man alone is going to reconcile man to God for he will extend his favor, not to you, the Jews who had their confidence in these outward signs. No, 
the favor is now extended to those who is of his people throughout the entire world. I bring your attention to Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And now to show harmony from the old and on to the new. 1 Peter 2.24 And he himself brought our sins in his body upon the cross. So that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Let us now then segue to verse number 30. For here the Baptist explains, this is he, as he continues in his quote here, this is he in behalf of whom I said, after me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. You note here, it's the acknowledgement of the evangelist statement that was reiterated first in verse 15 in the prologue this is he of whom i said he is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me here by verse 30 we hear it from john the baptist's mouth and in this because note here the messiah is in his manifestation and is standing in front of the people it is a show, as in his continual announcement, that what we spoke of yesterday, as you wrongfully thought I was the man, here is the man. And to bring you back down memory lane, I'm going to reiterate to you again what I said yesterday. This is the man who is coming after me and has been proven to be my superior because he existed. Before me. They must be thinking. You mean he was born before you? No. No. John was born before the Christ. It is to exclaim that the Christ. And his pre-incarnate. The God. The second person of the Trinity. He pre-existed. Did you remember when I brought to you the intro with Acts 17 at verses 24 to 31? And note the consistency and harmony throughout all the men who speak in Scripture. They always denote the pre-existence of God. Paul does it. John the Baptist is doing it here. And the difference within all the Gospels, John the Apostle notes it in the beginning chapter of his gospel book the consistency and harmony they're not sitting in a room as some of the humanists might want to think and all saying you're going to say this and i'll say this and you say that that's not how it worked with the collection and the groupings of the church and the movement of the spirit which i'm going to show you characterized in john's life just how impactful that is but the movement of the Spirit in order to have all the writings collected and preserved in the time according to his perfect will shows the, prepos the prepositions are in harmony. They are consistent. Nothing was lost. 
Well then, with that being stated, John here continuing in this particular verse is punctuating and showing the fulfillment of the prophecy which he himself, John the Baptist, he himself was brought on this earth to fulfill. He was the herald custodian who was foretold of to come 400 years plus prior in order to prepare the way. I know to you the testimony of Malachi. And I bring this back to your remembrance. Behold, I am sending my messenger and he will clear a way before me. And of this fulfillment in which in the order and time he was to prepare a way. Now with Christ's public manifestation, John will surrender his office to Christ. For in Matthew 3 verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, in continuing the understanding here, we note here to particular clause, as John iterates, a man who's proved, proved to be my superior. It just relates to the fact, again, going back to the dynamics of the conversation they had previously in the prior day, he goes in a short, here is the glory that the Son of God is adorned with. For he, as you recall, by what I brought to you in verse 14, and it was iterated again by verse 16, he is the only begotten, the only begotten. This means God would place Christ above every man, above every angel. For note again by Hebrews 1, 5 through 6, it reads, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, he said to one of them, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. John the Baptist's proclamation here is to make very evident, to make very clear the harmony that is seen throughout, that is the coming Redeemer, would appease the wrath of God. And from, from the time that he was conceived, and all things he was to be made alike his people, and the difference. In that glorification, he was without sin. He was without sin. So, with Christ now being shown, he still has a human nature of which he grows, like I stated to you before, and he progresses in advancement in his age and his knowledge as a human being capacity. But in regards to that special union that he has, he received the free gifts of the Spirit. I note to you here, Hebrews 2, 14, and also Hebrews 4, 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. For by verse 15 in chapter 4 of Hebrews, 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but the one who has been tempted, tempted in all things, just as we are. He is yet without sin. The adage here of which is to show that God, man, in his fullness, Pastor JP gave it to us with the exegesis of verse 16 in John 1. For of his fullness, we can then all receive grace upon grace. And of this, it allows us to segue eloquently to verse 31. For and John 1 verse 31, he notes then his in his statement, I did not recognize him though. But so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold your horses. Put some water on the fire here. John the Baptist, did you not proclaim? And the reader has very proper knowledge to think. Did you not proclaim to this whole crowd that this man is the Christ? Did you not state this? I mean, you got to think. The priests and the Levites from Jerusalem and the messengers who had been sent from the Pharisees were trying to ask him, oh, are you the Christ the previous day? And the next day you say that this is him and then you tell the reader or the audience, which was his church of which this letter was originally written to, I did not know him, as the John the Baptist will make. Where's the confusion here? There is no confusion. For it denotes that they were not childhood buddies. I don't want you to be thinking, you know, like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to see you here in three days. Now come on over on this day. They didn't have it planned out. That's not the way you would think. It's common for us as men to say, well, if I know Pastor Jason, I would say, yeah, I know Pastor Jason for 12 years because I met him at a hip hop shop. Or JP, you know, I, I knew him for the past 12 years. I knew him because we were attending a previous church. That's what John is trying to avoid here. He is saying to them, here, I did not recognize him. He, I did, we were not friends from my youth. In fact, let me add on too. Because remember, I denoted to you the work of the Spirit. And it's amazing how it can work in your faith when you're reading the scriptures. I bring your attention to Luke 1.36. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, she was pregnant six months. And by the revelation that is stated in the scriptures, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And he denotes that Elizabeth, who the scripture reveals by Luke's writing, Elizabeth is your, is your, uh, is your relative. So what does Mary do? By verse 39 in Luke 1, she goes and visits. And upon Elizabeth hearing Mary's voice, John, six months old, in the womb, leaps with joy. Doesn't see her, but he hears through his own mother. He leaps with joy. In fact, by verse 44, Elizabeth states, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb by joy. So then John is making it clear to the crowd. This is not someone I knew from my youth. 
because it was revealed to me by divine inspiration of the spirit and the command of God. Because, you know, in Luke 1, verse 80, John, when he grew up, he was becoming strong in the spirit. And, you know, in this day and age, a lot of parents like to tell their kids at 18, you're out of the house. This man decides to go live in the desert and eat nothing but bugs and honey. I don't see him parading amongst the people. Well, then. The scripture states, as it continues that latter clause in Luke 1.80, he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And when he made his appearance known, for take note, in Matthew 3 verse 1, he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Or he makes his appearance known here in Luke 3.3, 3, he came into all the region around the Jordan. So as the crowds build, they came with many questions for they were just taken back by what he's acclaiming. He, they are claiming, you know, we have Abraham as our father. But then John admonishes them. And upon the admonishment, they reply back to him in Luke 3 10, then what are we to do, John? So, John, remember in Luke 3, verse 2, the word of God came to him. He states by reply, the one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none, and the one who has food is to do likewise. Amazed by this answer, now the tax collectors come to him, and they say, well, teacher, what are we are to do? So then by Luke 3, 13, John the Baptist exclaimed, collect no more than what you have been ordered to attain. And then the soldiers who were there and present, they also wondered, well, what are we to do as well then, John? And John spreads back by Luke 3, 14, do not exhort anyone for money or harass anyone and be content with your wages. This is the dynamic of the conversation that was transpiring the previous day. This, though John the Apostle doesn't give us detail, we now have clarity and a little more greater detail to understand the conveyment of why the crowds build as they build and why the questions were attained to him in regards to his authority and his identity. I mean, mind you, all the people were moved and they considered in their hearts and wonder what John was stating. Maybe surely he was the Christ. But no. No, no, no. By Luke 3, 16 and 17, he exclaims here, As for me, I baptize you with water. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And ho, 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 you know, it's amazing is here in this account in Luke, because Luke is a little more detailed than many of the other accounts and for, for very good reasons. Luke shows by verse 17 the note of the 
figurative expression with his hand and the way that he was going to clear the threshing floor for this Lord is not a Lord to take kind. This Lord is not a Lord that takes pressure in disobedience. This Lord is going to bring you truth. So it just goes to show you he doesn't know what he was going to look like until that day when he stands face to face with the God man and what he beheld his glory. Ladies and gentlemen, as I continue to go through this book, it amazed me more and more how previewed the men of that time was able to do. I can't stress enough how bad Moses wanted to see the face of God. And yet these people, they had an opportunity to have him stand there face to face. Captain said it well. The greatest event that transpired in humankind is when the God-man walked amongst his creation. Well, after now exclaiming to the people, it is by the Spirit that I know that this is the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of this world. John then continues in his testimony by verses 32 and 33 as we come back to John 1. He states, and I quote, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And by verse 33, I did not recognize him. Oh, again, I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, and I quote, as John's stating here, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I want you to note this revelation. That in comparison to the other accounts, bring your attention and note in Matthew 3, 14 and 15. And I'll read this to you here. John tried to prevent the Messiah from coming to him. At that, he even states, I have the need to be baptized by you. And yet you're coming to me? You're coming to me? Now, I want everybody to be full aware. You have four accounts. And in each account, you know, they know that Jesus Christ was baptized. He wasn't baptized four times. So this is a relevant event on that same day, depending on who's taking down the account. But this is a great note. Because our Lord replies back to John. He states, allow it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then having that allowance, John accepted. You see here, John is acknowledging what John the Apostle has been trying to exclaim from the beginning of his gospel. This is the Son of God. And in this, and his vocation as Christ, being the mediator, he attains a particular responsibility. 
of which in this fashion he distinguished him as the prophet. Ah, you remember when Pastor Jason was going through verses 19 through 27. Go back if you need to to denote why they were thinking John the Baptist was the prophet. He spoke about it and exclaimed it very eloquently. Here now with the progression of time and we're receiving all the this portion of the chapter, you're coming to an understanding that here John is exclaiming that this Christ is the prophet. This Christ is the son of God. And John being born in sin, though in his mother's room, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, still did not find it fitting to baptize the God-man. He did not find it fitting because he was born in sin and he had tainted hands. But what does he do? He asks his Lord and his Lord by exclamation allows it. For in this way, he tells John, you were called to an office. Go and fulfill your duty. And inferring from this, this here is why we can take comfort in understanding that the Christ comes in by ordaining baptism. This here is the book Martin's statement. It is not something that is actually hard to convey. Think of it this way. The children was born in Israel. And on the eighth day, particularly the males, they were to be circumcised. Now, granted, that is the law of God that was given to Moses on that day to initiate them into the covenant. But here, as the Lord is now showing the fulfillment, as it's brought to you, everything done to him, I gave you all the details, was accordance to the law of Moses. So he was not out of step with the law. But note when the many men throughout the years, when Israel is going through so much turmoil and chaos, and all of a sudden they come up with their own set of rules, and you notice the admonishment that the Messiah is going to take. Even John the Baptist does it. If you get a chance to read Luke 3 from 1 to 22, the admonishment to these people to have such nerve to think that you are the one by which salvation comes from. Mm-mm. Mm, mm, mm. John's statement here shows that it is by you baptism is ordained. And that's where he's trying to reveal when he talks about the revealment to Israel. I baptize by water, but you baptize by a completely different ritual that I cannot attain. Therefore, and as his question is broached here, I have the need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. But our Lord, in being such a merciful and great counselor, shows by the answer, no. In order for us to fulfill righteousness properly, you must do this. Well then, I bring to you now, as we continue here, God then has 
John the Baptist performed the ritual. And he stated, while during this whole process is going, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it remained upon him. The Spirit does not have hands and feet. Therefore, John did not technically say in that, in that court, oh my gosh, the Spirit is a dove and will always be a dove from future generations. No. That is not the case. The dove was a sign, an infallible sign that the spirit was present. In fact, it's seen historically that this was more of a figure of speech and expression because one would think, well, you have a massive crowd. They're near the Jordan River. Jesus, according to some of the interpretations in the other accounts, was submerged. But as you know, as a Presbyterian, we also take to the sprinkling. But nonetheless, as he is going through the process, I'm not going to get into semantics, as he's going through the process, we can see that each one makes a distinguishment upon which the sign of the Spirit is upon the Messiah. And they're all consistent. That is in the form of a dove. But this is not to be something as to which we would have contention to say as to the Spirit and granted the Holy Spirit is making uh, a necessitation even in our more modern day to take upon, you know, some sort of form. It's more an effect to that day that here is the testimony that every prophet looked to see and because you're beholding him in his glory here is the dove in this form that shows that infallible sign that this is him this is him it also conveyed to those who were there that the concealment after 30 years the messiah lived a private life after 30 years, it was no more. It was no more. And that his earthly ministry has begun. Calvin states here, and I quote, Christ received the spirit not only for himself, but for his people. For on that account, his descent was visible. And now we may know that dwells an abundance of all gifts of which we ourselves are empty of. We ourselves are empty of. For from the words of the practice, he states, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, it is he who baptized with the Spirit. His meaning is that the reason why the Spirit was beheld in visible form and remain on Christ was that he might water all his people with the fullness of himself. And again, by verse 33, as we've come now to continue in John 1, he stated, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me baptized in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, John is not schizophrenic and repeating himself twice. That's not what this is. Note the particular clause in verse 33. But he who sent me, he who sent me to baptize 
in water said to me. This is why, and likewise of John's testimony, of John the Baptist in particular, he shows that this was a man that was heralded with a particular office. And I conveyed this when I went through verses 6 through 13. I brought to you Luke 3, 2. And I introduced you Matthew 3, 14 through 16. This is by all means a confirmation that John was sent from God. And you know what's interesting? Because now as we're coming to a close and we arrive at verse number 34, he states, and this is John the Apostle stating, and I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, let's bring all the accounts to forefront here. Take note, Matthew 3, 17, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, 22. Make the reference upon hearing the Father's voice. You are my son, beloved son, granted, and you I am well pleased. So does that mean was John the Apostle slack in not mentioning such an important phrase? Nope, he was not. For this is what I would say again, and it brings the whole piece from John 1 verse 1 to where we are now at verse 34, as Christ starts his ministry. Everything is coming together. He exclaimed the Father from the beginning. He denoted from the beginning the triune God existed. Impactful. In fact, even to note harmony, he shows through the testimony in John the Baptist as he's conveying and giving his two-day work with the first day having the day with the messengers and the second day dealing with the baptism of Christ. He showed even John the Baptist takes note of Christ's divinity. And what did we learn as Jason brought to us by John 20? All these things were written so that you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, I even bring this to your attention. Do you think that John was slack and did not believe in the ascension of Christ? That after rising up, he goes and ascends to the heaven? He doesn't note it in his gospel, and neither does Matthew. So were they slack? Were they not authoritative? Did Christ did not ascend? No. You would not take to that attitude. You know Christ ascended because you see the harmony throughout the other accounts. But the attention and nuance here that John is giving you is showing, like I said, that personal styling and nuance because it was conveyed for that particular audience. He knew them personally. What we as people, men of the book, are doing here today is showing you harmony throughout the scriptures. So that from the days of which Moses was writing the Pentateuch to the last days when John gives revelation, they are all in harmony. The humanist has no footing to stand to say that there is one contradiction. 
That's why I said what I said during the commercial. They want to find contradictions. They don't got it. It's not there. And you, by move of the Spirit, you believe in what God has stated because you know it to be true. And note the work of John the Baptist's own life. I did not see this man from the time of my youth. And the day that now behold him, I know exactly who he is. That is what's making this gospel come alive for those it was attended to. As we continue down and we get to verse number 35 to the remaining of the chapters, Pastor JP will continue to show along this premise because you will note here the divinity that's being conveyed, the harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you start to realize, as they make their claim, look, we found the Christ. Look, we found the Christ. The Christ now will now come to flourishing and show how his earthly ministry is going to take place. Let us pray.